0: The recent Operation Varsity Blue college admission scandal reminds us that fraud has never really gone away. As we've seen over the past 20 years, frauds such as those involving Enron, Madoff, and the Stanford Financial Group often give rise to claims that law firms aided and abetted the fraud. I'm Terry Garland, and you're listening to the Portable Ethics Lawyer. Today, we're joined by Steve Morose, a senior loss prevention lawyer at Alas who will discuss detecting and avoiding the risks of representing fraudsters as clients. Welcome, Steve. Hi, Terry. It's great to be here. Steve, let's start by defining what we mean by fraud schemes. Sure. A fraud scheme is
1: really just a business or enterprise that is not doing what it purports to do. They come in all shapes and sizes. The scheme might involve a legitimate business that was not as successful as planned. Perhaps the business model didn't work out. Rather than fold-up shop, the business operators disguise its failings through financial shenanigans, questionable accounting, and lying to investors, perhaps in the hopes of righting the ship. Or maybe there is no real business at all. That is the case in pure Ponzi schemes, which are investment schemes where money from recent investors is used to pay investment returns to earlier investors. As I'm sure most of our listeners know, that was the case in the Madoff scam. At bottom, the perpetrators of these scams mislead investors, those doing business with the scam, and their employees and professionals. The perpetrators do this to line their own pockets and or to keep their business afloat in the hopes that it will one day become profitable.
0: So how do law firms get implicated in these fraud schemes?
1: The fraudsters lure lawyers in by making their fraud schemes appear to be legitimate businesses. Businesses need lawyers for all kinds of routine reasons— to incorporate, to perform regulatory functions, to handle litigation, and so forth. In that sense, fraud schemes are like other businesses. So they hire attorneys and accountants to help them run the business. They then point to these trusted advisors to convince innocent investors to lend them money, buy stock, or otherwise invest in the so-called business. Of course, the larger the fraud scheme, the more complicated the scheme, the longer the scheme goes on, the greater the need for legal assistance and advice. And the presence of respected legal advisors and other professionals, like investment bankers or accountants, lends an air of legitimacy to the fraud scheme.
0: And we know what happens to those lawyers once the fraud collapses.
1: Right. Once the fraud goes bust and investors are left broken angry, they look not only for someone to blame, but for a source to replace the money lost to the fraud. The professionals who did the legal work for the fraudster are always an appealing target.
0: Of course. Would you walk us through how those claims play out? Sure.
1: Once a fraud collapses, a firm that did legal work for the fraudulent entity will typically be sued for aiding and abetting the fraud. The claim is usually brought by the third parties who were defrauded and lost money in the fraud. Sometimes, claims are brought by a bankruptcy receiver or trustee standing in the shoes of the client itself. More rarely, the fraudulent entity brings suit usually after kicking out the scoundrels who were running the fraudulent scheme. And, believe it or not, sometimes the scoundrels even sue their own lawyers. In some instances, multiple plaintiffs, including the SEC, the Department of Justice, and others, bring claims. In all of these types of suits, firms are commonly accused of ignoring warning signs or red flags that its client was engaged in a fraud.
0: I know that damages alleged in these cases can be quite high.
1: Absolutely. Some of ALAS's biggest claims were the result of our firms being sued after the collapse of a fraud scheme. Most recently, the Stanford Financial Group trustee has entered into some massive settlements with non-ALAS firms who advised that scheme. Between 2016 and 2018, three firms paid settlements to the trustee totaling over $130 million. Two of those firms each paid about $35 million dollars, and the third firm paid a $63 million settlement. Firms should be very incentivized to identify fraud schemes and fraudsters and avoid them as clients.
0: Let's talk about that. How do firms identify and avoid these types of unworthy clients?
1: Let me first just say that it isn't easy. By their very nature, the folks that run these schemes are experts at deceiving people, including lawyers. Firms that have represented clients for years often don't realize that the client was operating a fraud. Law firms often do not examine or even know about the details of a client's finances so long as the firm's bills are paid. And firms are often engaged to perform discrete tasks and so don't have the opportunity to see inside their client's business operations. That said, there are yellow and red flags to look out for. The first thing is lawyers should always trust their gut. If something seems off or unusual about a client's business, a lawyer should trust that feeling and follow it up. Too often, folks who invest in schemes talk themselves out of their suspicions, and the same can be true of lawyers. Schemes survive and thrive often because no one bothers to think that a business could possibly be a fraud, or because an investor or participant does not want to admit to themselves that they were taken. But trusting your gut does not always work. Sometimes lawyers just get too close to their clients and they lose objectivity.
0: So what should they look for?
1: A key characteristic of fraud schemes is that they are often too good to be true. They have unwavering or unchanging good performance until they collapse, and that good performance continues even when competitors are in a downturn. So if a lawyer finds herself marveling at a client's financial performance even when competitors are in a down market, that can be an indicator of fraud. Operational irregularities, meaning that the business operates in ways that is different than other businesses, can be another indicator of a fraud scheme. For example, even though Bernie Madoff managed billions of assets, his auditor was a sole practitioner. That should have been a red flag. Because fraudulent schemes need to be able to control how their finances are disclosed and described, they will often need an accountant they can control or one that they can convince to issue questionable financials. This means that businesses you would expect to have their accounting done by a large, reputable accounting firm are instead having their financial statements certified by a sole practitioner or a small accounting firm. Another operational irregularity can be unusual employment practices, like overly generous vacation time, loans to employees, or excessive or unusual bonuses. Fraudsters need employees to carry out their schemes, and one way to keep employees from asking too many questions or to get them to ignore their own suspicions is to give them extra benefits that a legitimate business wouldn't offer. Fraud schemes are also often family affairs, with key positions staffed by relatives, family members, and trusted friends.
0: What about the people running these schemes? Do they have particular characteristics that lawyers should be looking for?
1: Yes, although they go in two opposite directions. Many schemers have some legal or regulatory problem in their background, like a bankruptcy, bad credit, regulatory sanctions, or some combination of these. When firms are doing due diligence on clients— and the business centers around a single individual or small group, it is important to conduct due diligence on the individuals as well as the business, as that may reveal issues. But schemers can also often appear to have sterling reputations and be public philanthropists. Bernie Madoff, for example, co-founded NASDAQ and was the chairman of the National Association of Securities Dealers. Alan Stanford of the Stanford Financial Group was a well-respected financier and philanthropist. Fraud scheme operators are often generous donors and contribute to nonprofit organizations and political campaigns. Firms should not set aside suspicions about a client simply because an individual has a respectable resume or is a civic fixture. Enron was the toast of Houston before its fraud was exposed.
0: That's an excellent point. Firms should not be lulled into complacency by potential clients' prominence in the community. Any other common traits of frauds that firms should be on the lookout for?
1: Yes, I want to mention a couple others. Often there will be a gap between how the fraudster describes or presents the business and the sophistication of its actual operations. If a lawyer is surprised by the rudimentary or backward nature of the offices and operation of what purports to be a successful, sophisticated client, that can be an indicator of fraud. And fraudsters typically let their scheme sell itself, relying on word of mouth and working within a limited pool of investors. Bernie Madoff recruited investors primarily through word of mouth at country clubs and charitable organizations, for example. Schemes do not want a wide variety of investors for fear of attracting too much attention or attracting participants who may ask too many or the wrong kind of questions. And the limited pool of investors does not need to be individuals. One scheme out of California defrauded a series of banks and insurance companies. The key takeaway for firms is to be wary if they notice some of these characteristics in a client's business and to conduct further investigation if they suspect that a client's business may not be legitimate.
0: Now, what about lawyers who defend a client accused of fraud? Isn't there a difference between what we're discussing today, clients running a fraudulent scheme, and a firm defending a client accused of fraud?
1: Generally, that's right, Terry. We've been talking about situations where firms are not necessarily aware that their client is a fraud and they may be accused of assisting the client's fraud. Firms should also be very careful, though, in defending clients who have been accused of, say, fraud, defrauding the IRS, or insider trading. We have seen significant claims against firms in that very situation, that is, firms that believe they were trying to right the client's ship only to be caught up in the client's continuing fraud.
0: Steve, are there any resources law firms can use to detect fraudster clients before they agree to represent them?
1: Yes. Alas provides resources regarding client due diligence, including a yellow flag checklist available on our website to the general counsels of firms insured by Alas.
0: One final question, Steve. Are lawyers required to notify the authorities if they suspect a client of fraud?
1: That's a very complex area and should be the subject of its own podcast. If questions arise about this issue, lawyers should consult their firm's general counsel, who will want to take a look at the relevant jurisdiction's version of Model Rules 1.6 and 4.1. Those rules can vary considerably by state. For example, California doesn't permit disclosure of confidential client information to prevent or mitigate financial harm. The GC might also examine federal law, such as Sarbanes-Oxley, if it applies to the facts. Essentially, we recommend that when lawyers have concerns about their clients, they should take those concerns to their GCs for guidance.
0: Good advice. Thanks for joining us, Steve.
1: It was a pleasure, Terry. Thank you.
0: Until next time, I'm Terry Garland, and this is the Portable Ethics Lawyer.
1: This podcast is provided for educational purposes to assist lawyers in avoiding ethics violations, malpractice suits, other professional liability claims, and management liability claims. This podcast does not constitute legal advice and is not intended to establish an attorney-client relationship, nor is it intended to suggest or establish standards of care applicable to particular lawyers in any given situation. The recommendations contained in this podcast are not necessarily appropriate for every lawyer or law firm. In determining the best course of action, lawyers should consider the applicable legal authorities and all relevant facts and circumstances. Copyright 2019 by Attorneys Liability Assurance Society. All rights reserved.